title of the series comes from, this is from the second paragraph, begins, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Inalienable rights are rights that are given by God. They're not rights that are given by any government. They're not rights that are given by a certain people, but rather they are given by God. And that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, does anybody know who wrote that? Y'all, you feel like you don't even need to preach a sermon, right? Thomas Jefferson did. That's right. Thomas Jefferson was, I believe, the third president of the United States in 1801. He became president. Did I say that right? Somebody's laughing like, uh-uh, he was the fourth. I don't know. But in any case, he was one of the early guys. And uh, so he became president, and he, these words that he wrote were part of the Declaration of Independence. They were adopted by the Second Constitutional Congress in July 4th of 1776. Um, and this, these words, with, the, with that document, he declared the 13 colonies as sovereign states independent of Britain. Um, now, I had the privilege this past Thanksgiving of going to the home of Thomas Jefferson in Monticello, Virginia, and uh, I've got some pictures here for you what that might have looked like. You can see the picture, an aerial picture of, of Monticello, and the, the, his home site sat on top of, I guess you could call it a mountain. It was a pretty doggone high hill if it wasn't. And uh, it was up on top of this hill, up on top of this mountain, and it had a beautiful vista looking down. You could see for miles and miles and miles, you could see the University of Virginia, I believe it was, that he founded off in the distance. And, um, and so it was just this beautiful vista. And then you can see another picture that has the back of his house. And if you have one of our coins, you know which one of our coins has his house on it? The nickel, that's right. So on the, back, on the back of the nickel is this picture of the back of his house. If you ever have an opportunity to go to Thomas Jefferson's house, it's a pretty neat place. I advise you to go check it out. He's a brilliant guy. Um, and uh, while we were on our tour of the house, uh, we got toward the end. And so we're standing there, we're looking out over the grounds, looking out over all the valley below. And I, so I asked the tour guide, he was an expert in Thomas Jefferson, and I said, sir, you know that phrase where he said, all men are created equal? Who did Thomas Jefferson have in mind? Who did he mean by men? Did he think of men and women? Is he thinking of everybody on the planet? I mean, who does he have in mind? Who is he thinking of? And the tour guide responded without any hesitation. He said, Thomas Jefferson meant white landowning males. That's who Thomas Jefferson had in mind when he wrote that statement. Now, the Bible has a different view, perhaps, than what Thomas Jefferson has to say there, what we talk about when we talk about all men are created equal. And so that's what we want to get at, is both what, what is, where was our country, where it was founded. So we talk about some history. We're not going to get into that today. It's coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and so we want to talk about the founding of our country, the values that were present at the founding of our country, and how some of those values have carried forward even to today. And uh, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing going on in our culture these days around the subjects of race. And so we want to allow the Bible to speak to us and speak into this issue. Um, our text comes from Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 24 and 25. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Remember, this is day six of the creation account, day six of the creation account. And so we want to allow the Bible to speak into this issue of race. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 24. Here we go. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. All right. Thanks so much. You may be seated. Um, so we just read over part of the creation account. This is day six of the creation account. You say, Gordon, whoa, hold on just a second. Before you go any further, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the world was created in six days as the Bible gives an account here? I mean, that seems like such an archaic 
point of view that seems like such an archaic. Have you read a biology book lately? Uh, don't you get that? Well, let me ask you a question. Um, the Lord Jesus himself, did he believe it, the world was created in six days? I mean, Jesus was God in the flesh. In fact, in the scriptures, we see that Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were real historical people. He actually quotes from these verses here in Genesis chapter 1. And so my question to you is, if this was good enough for Jesus, who is God in the flesh, then isn't that supposed, shouldn't that be good enough for you and I? And then another follow-up question is, could the almighty, omnipotent God of the universe have created the world in six days? I mean, he is all-powerful, right? You say, well, yeah, I guess he could have if he wanted to. Um, and, and we are talking about 24-hour days here. There's the word yom in the Hebrew language there, and it always throughout Scripture means a 24-hour day. The sun comes up, sun goes down, sun comes back up. It's a 24-hour day. That's the kind of day that's in view here, not a day that lasts for 2,000 years or something like that, <clears throat> but rather it's the six-period day. And so if God could have, then why, why is that a problem for us? Well, see, the problem for us is that we've been trained in our minds to think about the Scriptures through a secular educational point of view. Our minds have been trained, even so, since we were children, little TV shows like Dinosaur Train. Some of you all have little kids who remember watching Dinosaur Train. Some of these other TV shows that are out there all the way up through our college textbooks have told us that this is the way the world came into being. And so we're looking, we come to the scripture with those preconditions, those foundations of belief already in place. And when we come to the scriptures, we try to impose that foundation that we've been trained into onto the scriptures itself. So the problem is not that the scriptures are wrong. The problem is that we come to the scriptures with certain preconditions and we expect the scripture to meet those preconditions that we have. That's what the problem is. All right, so what does it say that God created on day six? Well, we just read it. It says that God created the land-walking creatures. Look at verse 24. It says the livestock and the creeping things and the beasts of the earth, things like lions, things like elephants, things like tigers and bears. If you were to skip down just a couple of verses or skip back into the chapter, just a couple of verses, you'd see that on day five, God creates both the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And if you read ahead a couple of verses, you'll see that on day six, the last thing that God creates is he creates mankind himself. Now, I want for you to notice in these verses a recurring phrase, and you see this there in verse 24, and you see it again in verse 25. Look at 25 with me. It says, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Do you see that phrase there? And you see it repeated over and over again, according to their kind, each created according to their kind, the livestock according to their kind, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. So anytime a phrase like that is repeated over and over again in Scripture, Scripture is trying to get our attention. It's trying to tell us something. It's trying to remind us of an important point that's being made. And the point that's being made there, if you skip back to verse 5, is repeated. <clears throat> I'm sorry, if you skip back to day 5, so we're looking at day 6, look at day 5, verse 21. Here's the uh, creation of the fish. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. And how did God do that? According to their kind. So God created the fish of the sea. He created the birds of the air, each according to their kinds, the text says. If you skip back one more day of creation to day three, working backwards here, you see the creation of plants and you see the creation of trees. You have birch trees that pop up. You have pine trees that pop up. You have oak trees that pop up. And so all of these distinct trees, verse, 20, verse 12, says the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and here's our phrase, according to their kind. And the trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to their kind. So what the scripture says here in these early days of creation, as God's creating uh, the plants, as he's creating the trees, as he's creating the beings that walk the earth, as he's creating the fish, the birds, everything in creation, everything that's alive, 
God creates each of them distinctly. God creates each of them as a unique species, each according to their kind. And then back to day six, at the zenith of God's creation, he says, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now you'll notice at the end of that verse or at the end of that line, you don't see the phrase according to their kinds. It doesn't appear there. And the reason why is because mankind was the only thing that God was creating in that moment. He wasn't creating birch trees and pine trees and oak trees all at the same time along with human beings. Human beings were the last thing that God created. Human beings were the zenith of God's creation. It was the the ultimate of all that God created. And so because of that, you don't see that phrase, each according to its kind. Okay, let's summarize. The phrase according to their kind occurs over and over again all throughout the creation account. We've seen that. And with this phrase, the Bible teaches us that God, not evolution, is responsible for the different species in the world today. And we see this confirmed in two ways. First, we see this confirmed in observable nature. Now, in nature... Nowhere in nature are there to be found transitional species. That, that, that is, you can't find in nature cats that are on their way to becoming dogs. You don't see a cat walking by and going, that's heading for a dog, right? <laughs> you don't see a cat walking by that can bark or that has a dog nose. You see the cat kind, right? Just as you see the dog kind. Uh, there are no humans with gills. There are no pigs with feathers. Why? Because God created each according to their kind, just like the Bible says. We can look at observable nature and we can see that there's no evidence of transitional species out in the world. There's a clear distinction between pine trees and birch trees. There's a clear distinction between small fish and larger fish. There's a clear distinction between all the four-legged animals that we call the species that walk on planet Earth. In nature, transitional species do not exist. And then the evolutionist comes along and says, well, yes, that is true. In observable nature, we cannot see see transitional species. And the reason the evolutionist would say we don't see that is because all the species of the world have uh, basically hit the zenith of their evolutionary process. That is, that the horse kind has become the horse kind. It's, It's evolved all the way out. That the giraffe has evolved all the way out. And so that's why there's no species in transition in our world today. Um, okay, well, that may be true, but the problem here is if all the animals that are on the world today, if all the plants and birds and stuff that are in the world today have gone all the way out to the extent of their evolving process, if that's what happens, then we should be able to look back, though, in history. We should be able to look back in the record of history called the fossil record, and we should be able to find evidence of these transitional species, horses going on to be giraffes, right? It makes sense. And you should be able to see this. You should be able to fish that are heading toward becoming something else, right? You should be able to find these transitional species in the fossil record. It should be there. The problem is, out of the millions and millions of fossils that are in the museums of the world today, there is not one single transitional species among them. Y'all know how fossils are made, right? A living organism gets piled up on top of a flood happens. And so a bunch of, a bunch of soil uh, piles up and, and on top of this living fossil because it doesn't have time to decay. All this stuff piles up on top of it. The mud dries up over time. It compacts on top of this living organism, and that living organism turns into rock, and we call that a fossil. And so it's preserved in the, in the soil that has, uh, that has hardened over time and become a rock. And so we, cannot, we see no evidence of any transitional species, no horse, with a really long neck on its way to becoming a giraffe. It does not exist in the fossil record. There are no such things. 
See, the fossil record should be full. It should hold innumerable examples of these species and transition, but no such thing exists. Y'all with me? And the reason for that is, is because the Bible says, and it's been right all along, that God created each according to its kind. This is liberal arts education, folks. This is just taking the evidence that exists in front of us, following it to a conclusion, toward, to truth. That's all we're doing here. Um, and so the facts on the ground confirm that each is according to it, has been created according to its kind. Um, now the question this raises is, have the creatures of the earth stayed the same since they were created? Um, in other words, God created each according to its kind, but does that mean that each of the kinds have never changed? And the answer to that is an unequivocal no, that absolutely the creatures of the world have changed since they were originally created. The beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, all have taken on changes in appearance since those first days of creation. Let me explain how those changes come about. I got a picture here for you of the DNA molecule. The DNA molecule is basically the, the blueprint or the information uh, tank, if you would, for all of the, uh, of the living organisms in the world. The DNA helix is made up of two chains of nucleotides. They coil around each other and form the double helix that you see there. And in that DNA molecule is all the information that a particular species will need in order to reproduce itself, in order to sustain itself, in order to develop itself, whether that's a plant or a person or whatever. The DNA molecule is like the blueprints for all of life. It's the information vessel. And there's a unique DNA strand, get this, a unique DNA strand for every single living organism. For the pine tree, for the birch tree, for the fish, for the, for the hawk, every single one has its own unique DNA strand, and that's how that species is continuing to be produced. Now, if you and I were to try and make a giraffe out of a rosebush DNA strand, so we took a rosebush, we took the DNA of a rosebush, and we said to the rosebush DNA, hey, I want for you to become a giraffe. The rosebush DNA would say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have that information. I don't possess that information. I have no way to turn my DNA strand into something that would produce a giraffe. It doesn't exist. Just the same with the human DNA strand. <clears throat> the human DNA strand does not contain the information to create a frog leg, which is why you don't see human beings walking around with frog legs. You will never see a human being walking around with frog legs. You will never see a human being walking around with feathers. The reason is because our DNA strand is uniquely designed. The information is not contained in that DNA strand in order to produce feathers. If you were to say to your DNA strand, hey, I would really like to learn how to fly. I want for you to create some feathers. Again, your DNA strand would look at you and say, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no way for me to do that because I don't possess that information. I don't have the information that's required to put feathers on you. It doesn't exist. Friends, this fits perfectly with what the Bible says, that God created every biological species according to its kind. What a powerful and truthful phrase. He gave each one a unique DNA sequence, whether it's a bird or a plant or a beast of the field or a human being. Each has its own unique DNA sequence of information that's capable of producing only that species, only that kind. Now back to our question, have creatures and plants stayed the same in their appearance? Again, the answer is no. Things have changed, and the reason that everything has changed and looks different than it did at creation is because the inside of that DNA sequence are potential for diversity within that species. Take, for example, the dog. There are many different kinds of dogs. You see some pictures of some dogs up here, some that you 
maybe have at your house. I don't know. Uh, there's pictures of dogs that are short. There's tall dogs. There's dogs with long hair, dogs with short hair, dogs with smushed noses, dogs with long noses, dogs that know what team to root for, dogs that are quick, dogs that are slow, dogs that are smart, dogs that are not so smart. My, the point is, there are all types of dogs, but there's only one dog species, one dog kind. In other words, all the dog types that we see in the world, the tremendous diversity among the dog kind, all comes from that one DNA sequencing that contains all the information for long legs and short legs, long noses, smushed noses, long hair, short hair, you name it. It's all in that DNA sequencing of the dog kind. In the Science Journal of November 2002, secular scientists completed a genetic study of the dog DNA sequence. They took examples from 654 domestic dogs. Think about that. They basically took all the different breeds of dogs that are out there. 654 domestic dogs. They took the DNA sequencing, and they compared all those 654 DNA strands from the different dog types. Here's what they found. said, the origin of the domestic dog from wolves has been established. We examined the mitochondrial DNA sequence variation among 654 domestic dogs representing all major dog populations worldwide, all the breeds, suggesting a common origin from a single gene pool for all dog population. Now, the article goes on to conclude, here's what it says, 2-kilogram teacup poodles, 90-kilogram mastiffs, big dog, slender greyhounds, squat English bulldogs, for a single species, canines come in a vast array of shapes and sizes. Even more remarkably, they all come from the same stock, end of quote. Let me put that in layman's terms. When Noah entered onto the ark, he only had to take one dog pair. And out of that one dog pair came the tremendous variety and diversity that we see in the dog kind, in the dog species. You follow that? And that fits, again, exactly with what the Scripture says, that each species was created according to its kind. Friends, <clears throat> if we just wait long enough, science will catch up to where the Bible already is. All right? Okay, well, that's our um, treatment of this topic for today, which means it's time for us to ask our most important question. You know what that is. We ask it every week around here. What difference does this make to my life? You say, I mean, Gordon, I appreciate the science lesson this morning. That was, that was interesting. wasn't expecting that. But, I mean, what does this have to do with race? What does this have to do? What difference does this make to my life? Well, it's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Just like the St. Bernard and the Dachshund and the Lab can all be traced back to a single dog pairing, the same can be said of human beings. Every human being on the planet can be traced back to a single pairing, and the Bible refers to that pairing as Adam and Eve, which means, don't miss this, which means that if we have a single ancestry, that we human beings are one race, the human race, or the humankind. Now, that word race prior to about 1860 used to be used in very different contexts in the English language. If you look across the English language, <clears throat> Um, dating back before 1860, if somebody mentioned race, they were referring to somebody being an Irish Catholic. That was the Irish Catholic race. And so race kind of was a word that they would use to think about somebody's uh, nationality or their religious affiliation. German Armenians or Russian Orthodox. That was somebody's race. That's how we thought about race or that, top, that subject of race. Um, you say, well, Gordon, what changed? Well, in 1859, a guy by the name of Charles Darwin came out with his book titled On the Origin of 
of species. Where do all the different biological species that we see in the world, where does it all come from? And so he gave a theory, a theory that still is unproven today. And the subtitle of that book was The Origin of Species, The Preservation of Favored Races and the Struggles for Life. See, evolutionary theorists took Darwin's theory of evolution and they applied it to the human species. And here's what they taught. They taught that the human race is actually composed of not one, not two, not three, some would say four, some said as many as 22 different species of human beings. That is, that they're unconnected, unrelated. And so they looked at the person who was an Oriental. They looked at the person who was black. They looked at the person who was an Aborigine. They looked at the person who was white, and they said, these are all different species, not all of the same humankind, not all one race, but rather they said, look, these are all different species who branch from different origins. Evolutionary theorists taught this, and we have a slide for you here, that Orientals descended from the orangutan primates, that black people descended from gorillas. This is what they taught, that white people or caucasoids descended from the chimpanzee, and finally they taught that the aborigines of Australia, sadly, this is what they taught, that the aborigine of Australia wasn't even part of the human, humankind, wasn't even human, didn't even give them the, 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 the category of human. They said that they were a transitional species. They looked at aborigines as a transitional species on its way to becoming something else. Now, friends, do you see the bias and the flagrant racism, as we might think of that term today, in these conclusions? Darwin's theories advanced the hierarchy of the humankind, seeing some as of greater worth than others. And this philosophy, this theory, was institutionalized, and it became the seedbed for racist dogma that we know today. So thank you, Charles Darwin. It eventually would lead to Hitler's idea of a perfect Aryan race, where he would go out and exterminate vast populations of people, believing that they were low on the evolutionary scale. Now, friends, this stands in stark contrast to the teachings of Scripture. The Bible teaches that we are one race, the human race, the human kind. Couple that with what we know of the DNA molecule and the diversity among the human species can be attributed to the variety of information embedded in our DNA sequencing that creates all human life. So the Bible presents a very different picture of the value and the worth of people. And what does this have to do with your life and mine? Well, a couple of things. First conclusion that we can draw from this, number one, is that there is no such thing as interracial marriage. Uh, you may not have been raised to think of it like that, but when we're talking about the human race, we're talking about one race. So there is no such thing as interracial marriage based on the teachings of Scripture. <clears throat> what this means is that if a black person marries a white person, they have not crossed bread. What this means is that if a black person marries a white person, they have not commingled races, that they have not commingled species. They may have commingled some culture, depending on how each person was raised, but it does not mean that they have commingled or had some sort of an interracial marriage. <clears throat> um, because there's only one race, the human race. You say, well, Gordon, I got a couple questions for you. The Bible talks about unequally yoked, being unequally yoked. I mean, what was that Bible verse about? Well, let's take a look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 reads these words. Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, Paul's writing to the Corinthians who live in Corinth. Corinth was a very decadent society. It was a very depraved society. They were into all kinds of stuff. And so into that 
environment, Paul says, hey, look, you Corinthian Christians, uh, if you have fellowships and partnerships with people who are into all those sorts of things, it's going to drag you down. Bad, bad character corrupts good morals, right? And so, um, or bad, com- bad, bad company corrupts good morals, right? And so <clears throat> Paul, knowing that, said, hey, look, there's a contrast between the unbeliever and the believer, between light and darkness, between righteousness and lawlessness. And Paul says that's the difference between believers and non-believers, between Christians and non-Christians. Friends, this verse has nothing to do, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, with skin color. That's not what's in view. What's in view here is the, is the blending together of Christians and non-Christians. That's what Paul's talking about here. <clears throat> that believers linking themselves with non-believers and Christians partnering up with non-Christians, Paul says, will drag you down. Don't do it. Don't be unequally yoked. So when it comes to marriage, take a look at this picture. Which of these scenarios up here on the screen depicts what Paul has in view of 2 Corinthians 6 and 14? Is it the black Christian married to a white Christian? No, that's not what the Bible has in view when it talks about being unequally yoked. Is the picture of the white non-Christian married to an Asian non-Christian? Is that what the Bible has in view when it talks about being unequally yoked to non-Christians marrying one another? No. That's, again, not what the Bible has in view. The scenario that, the, that Paul and the Bible counsel against is when a Christian marries a non-Christian. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 are warning against. That's the only interracial marriage that exists in the Bible. When somebody of the race of Christ, who has entered into a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus, when they're part of the race of Christ, has um, has married, has wed someone who is of the race of Adam, who, who has not had the forgiveness of their sins, and those two wed, that is the only interracial marriage that the Bible knows about. Number two, what difference does this make? <clears throat> well, we need to let our values come from Scripture, not from culture. We need to let our values come from Scripture, not from culture. We stand up every week around here, right, to affirm again, that what we read on Facebook or what we read from our, heard from our mother-in-law, which my mother-in-law is full of wisdom and light. I don't know about y'all's mother-in-law, but... <laughs> we stand up each week to be reminded of where truth comes from and to hit the reset button every week that the things that we hear out in the world, the things that we hear in the media, the things that we hear amongst our coworkers, that, friends, a lot of that's grounded in the world. It's grounded in, in, in a non-Christian view of things. And so we hit the reset button each week just to be reminded that, hey, look, I know I had all that stuff filtering in my mind, and I need to just set it clear again. And so we stand for God's word. One of the leading fundamentalist evangelical colleges in the country is Bob Jones University. And they established a ban on interracial dating in the 1950s. The school adopted this policy not because of what they read in the Bible, but because of what was going on in the culture. And what was going on in the culture? It was the Jim Crow laws. It was segregation in our society. And so the Bob Jones Fundamentalist University adopted cultural values and brought those into the church, brought those into the fellowship of the saints. It happened because the church was following the values of the culture. Friends, we need to be constantly, we need to constantly evaluate, do my beliefs, do my values reflect the world around me? Do they reflect my friendships? Do they reflect my coworkers? Do they reflect the media, the different sources that I have speaking in my life? Or do I get my values? Do I get my cues from the Bible? Is my college professor, my liberal college professor, more in my head than scripture? 
is in my head? And we need to ask ourselves that question. Are my fundamentalist values more in my head than the freedoms of Scripture? Friends, this, boat, this road cuts both ways. Um, yes, it is true that we can become more, more worldly than the Bible permits. We can follow the world's values. We can follow the world's behaviors. We can let our sinful nature run amok. We can follow those things. It is true that we can become more worldly, more sinful than the Bible permits. But it is also true, same side of the other coin, that we can become more holy, more prudish than the Bible prescribes that we can become more fundamentalist, that we can become more tied to prudish ideas and concepts of what holiness looks like when the Bible says, hey, look, you have freedom in that area. What is it that, again, we say every week around here, we say that this is where truth comes from. Friend, you build your life squarely on the Word of God, and you'll never go wrong. Finally, what does it mean for your life and mine? It means that whatever the color of your skin, that you should love the skin you're in. You should love the skin you're in. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, here's a John, well, let's go ahead and read the first little part of it. It says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great white, a great white multitude that no one could count. <clears throat> it says, from every tribe, nation, or nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne of God. So here's all these people wearing their white robes, but they're representative of every tribe, every nation, every tongue on the earth. And so John has this vision in heaven. He pokes his head up through the clouds in the book of Revelation. He gets to see the heavenly throne room. He sees the Lamb. He sees the Son of God seated on the, on the throne. And what is it that he sees? He sees this multitude gathered around, representing every tribe, every tongue, every nation on the earth. What is it that he sees? He sees the color of all across the globe. They're different, differentiated by their skin. They don't all look the same. They look different. See, friends, God thinks black is beautiful. God thinks brown is fantastic. God thinks white and, freckle face, and a freckled face is worth celebrating. <clears throat> because when we get to heaven, God's not going to change our skin color. Did you see that? Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. God's not going to change our skin color, make everybody the same. He's going to leave that diversity in place. God wants for us to love the skin that we're in. Um, God's not going to have everybody match. God put in the human DNA molecule the capacity for great diversity. And that diversity will be present in heaven, friends, people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. So whatever the color of your skin, embrace it, accept it, love the skin that you're in. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. This is a challenging topic uh, for all people. And so, Lord, we just ask that we would, in our hearts, submit ourselves to the clear teaching of your word, that you would transform our perspective of the people that we go to work with each day, that you transform our perspective of ourselves. God, that we would see diversity as a wonderful expression that you set in motion by putting that information right in the blueprints of how you would make us. Lord, as we gather around this table today to celebrate your broken body and your shed blood, if there be anything in our hearts which is not pleasing to you or in your sight, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would put your finger on it that you would speak your truth into our life 
and that we would submit it over to you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.